This is The Guardian. Today, for the first time in over a hundred years, Sinn Féin has come first in Northern Ireland. In a system that requires political parties to work together, can its leaders end the Stormont deadlock? Thursday, people across Northern Ireland cast their votes in what turned out to be an historic election for the Northern Ireland Assembly. Over 48 hours, the ballots were counted and the results slowly became clear. At a cavernous sports hall in Maharafelt in County Derry, the Guardian's island correspondent, Rory Carroll, was waiting and watching. You could see it written on the faces of Sinn Féin supporters at the count centres. I mean, they were just beaming from ear to ear and they were trying to not do high fives because I think a message went out to Sinn Féin, and this is a very disciplined party, to not be triumphalist, to not start cheering and for God's sake, do not give any kind of IRA type slogans, to be responsible and so forth. I think when Michelle O'Neill, Sinn Féin's leader in Northern Ireland, and Mary Lou Macdonald, Sinn Féin's national leader, entered the count centre on Saturday. The cheers erupted because these were Republican royalty, to use a, a strange term for Republicans, and they were the conquering heroes for nationalism because we knew by then that the result was not going to change and that Sinn Féin had done it. Today ushers in a new era, which I believe presents us all with an opportunity to reimagine relationships in this society on the basis of fairness, on the basis of equality, and on the basis of social justice. The Irish Nationalist Party Sinn Féin had won 27 seats. The Democratic Unionist Party, or DUP, got 25. Now, for the first time since the north of Ireland was partitioned from the south in 1921, a unionist party will not lead the government. On the unionist side, there was just dismay, followed by, in some cases, people were kind of visibly stunned. I think they'd felt that somehow they could just avert this day. And yet here it was. The DUP's leader, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, said this was the result of unionists being divided. For several years now, his party's been locked in a dispute with the British government because of Brexit. As we left the EU, Boris Johnson agreed what's called the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has created a trade barrier between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, a system the DUP argues undermines the union. And this election is another blow to the party because Sinn Féin ultimately wants to poll people in Northern Ireland on whether they should leave the union altogether. After 101 years in Northern Ireland, supposedly a Protestant state constructed, devised, designed for a Protestant people, suddenly you now had nationalists slash Catholics becoming the biggest party. Now, DUP leaders are threatening to boycott the Northern Ireland Assembly, basically bringing the government to a standstill. They're demanding that Boris Johnson act on their concerns about the Northern Ireland Protocol. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. 
Today in Focus, a new balance of power in Northern Ireland. Rory Carroll, you're The Guardian's island correspondent. The result of last week's election is momentous. I mean, history making. How did Sinn Féin achieve their victory? I think two uh, key things delivered Sinn Féin this historic breakthrough. One, the party itself was extremely disciplined and smart um, in their strategy. Their messaging was repeatedly, they were focusing on bread and butter issues that uh, is, this election is about the cost of living crisis. Uh, this was about fixing the health service and being responsible, grown up politicians and trying to make Northern Ireland work. And yet at the same time, the kind of unspoken message to the voters was, guys, we can do it. We can emerge as the first, as the biggest party in Northern Ireland for the first time for nationalism in the in the history of this state. And this was a galvanizing moment. The second reason was the, the Democratic a unionist party led by Jeffrey Donaldson, in a sense, fed this Sinn Féin victory by using a dog whistle to their own supporters, by, by telling their own supporters, this election is about stopping Sinn Féin becoming the, the biggest party in Northern Ireland. That if you unionist voters do not come out and vote for us, Michelle O'Neill is going to be the first minister. You must vote for us. I think unionists are very concerned about what uh, a Sinn Féin victory in this election would mean in terms of uh, their divisive border poll plans. That's why we have put forward an effective five-point plan that we believe address all of the issues that matter to people right across Northern Ireland. So even many nationalist voters um, with a small lowercase n who actually don't care that much about United Ireland, they came out and voted this time for Sinn Féin just because they were so annoyed and affronted by what the DUP was telling their own supporters. So those two key things is what helped deliver this, this Sinn Féin victory. Why is it so significant? Because if you step back, Northern Ireland was created 101 years ago, carved out off the island of Ireland to deliver a, a permanent say, Protestant slash unionist majority that could control the state and keep it as part of the United Kingdom in perpetuity. And it did what it said on the tin for a century. And so this changes that, that narrative because suddenly we see that Sinn Féin became the biggest party. However, and in Northern Ireland, there's always multiple howevers and buts and caveats because the place is complicated. And the however is that the there's so many ironies in this election, but perhaps the single biggest one is that in this moment of, of Sinn Féin and nationalism's psychological symbolic breakthrough, their grand project, the unification of Ireland, is actually stalled. That support for a united Ireland is, is actually rather low in Northern Ireland. It has not grown despite all of the ructions of Brexit. The support for Northern Ireland breaking away from the UK and joining the Republic of Ireland is actually quite low. In the most recent poll, 30% were in favour of unification. So you do have this strange situation where Sinn Féin celebrating an important and momentous victory for sure, and yet their big project is actually a bit stuck. Sinn Féin has had a fraught history in Northern Ireland can you just remind me of that? What has their standing been with the public? Sinn Féin has gone through many iterations over the past century. Um, the current Sinn Féin that we know 
is emerge from the the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland just at the dawn of the Troubles. And that is the Sinn Féin of uh, Gerry Adams, Martin McGuinness, which in the 1970s was purely a PR mouthpiece for the IRA. It wasn't an actual real political party in the sense of it didn't fight elections. It purely was to basically write press releases to defend the latest IRA's attacks um, and atrocities. This changed dramatically. 1981, Bobby Sands, an IRA hunger striker, stood and won a by-election. He was elected to Westminster. The hunger strike prisoner, Bobby Sands, has won the by-election in Northern Ireland by a narrow majority, but it's still a propaganda boost for the IRA. He died a few weeks later on hunger strike, but this opened a political path for the party, which they've been pursuing with increasing effectiveness ever since. Um, and so they've done an, a remarkable turnaround of detoxifying their image for nationalists. IRA violence like the Shankill bombing saw Sinn Féin banned from the airwaves at the height of the troubles here. The elevation of its political wing is difficult for victims. But Alan McBride, whose wife died in the attack, wants Northern Ireland to move on. Well, they have a past, and let's not forget about that. I mean, they have come from violence and from being undemocratic to being democratic and for, to try to make the peace process work, and I think you have to recognise that journey. But that's not to say that you just can, you know, forgive and forget and move on. I, I Michelle O'Neill led the party to victory last week, and she's been absolutely key to that detoxification attempt that you talked about. What can you tell me about her background? Michelle O'Neill is a very interesting uh, leader for the Sinn Féin. She had started off life and with the very bumpy beginnings, um, and she'd be the first to say this. I mean, she was from a working class area in County Tyrone. So I grew up in Clano in County Tyrone. I'm actually very lucky to still live there. Um, it's a very close-knit community. I come from a small family, just myself and my brother. Her family were steeped in republicanism, which frankly is a euphemism for the fact that some of her relatives were in the IRA, uh, went to prison, some were killed um, by security forces. And so she grew up in that. At the age of 16, she became pregnant and gave birth to a daughter, uh, Saoirse. And remarkably, she's able to return to school and complete her A-levels. She was then co-opted into Sinn Féin, um, who recognised she was very personable. From around the mid-2000s, uh, Sinn Féin tapped her as, as a rising star. She won a council seat, then she became mayor in her town. Then she joined the Stormont Assembly, where she became a protégé of Martin McGuinness. In this election, what was Michelle O'Neill promising people? What were Sinn Féin's key policies? If you strip away the constitutional issues from the party's manifestos, what they were promising was all remarkably similar. You know, you could have kind of cut and pasted, you know, chunks of the DUP's manifesto onto Sinn Féin's manifesto and vice versa. They're all promising to put more money into the health services, which really are crumbling in, in Northern Ireland. They're promising to put more money into people's pockets. But it was more the unspoken message that the parties were giving, which is, look, this is a chance for our side to nudge ahead of the other side. I think people who voted for Sinn Féin is because they wanted to, to stuff the DUP. So since Thursday's election, Sinn Féin has become the largest party in Stormont, the Northern Irish Parliament, but it doesn't have an overall majority. What does that mean in practical terms? It means, in theory, virtually nothing has changed because 
Under the power sharing rules that were drafted under the Good Friday Agreement from 1998. Good evening. A historic day at Stormont after two years of talks and after a generation of bloodshed and decades of division and acrimony, an agreement that unites loyalist and republican, unionist and nationalist leaders in a wide-ranging historical accord. Northern Ireland is all about power sharing. So nationalists and unionists have to share power. They've no choice. They're locked into a loveless marriage at Stormont where ministerial portfolios would be divided between the main parties. And they also need to divide the first minister post, which is kind of split into two. So you have a first minister and a deputy first minister who have identical powers and one cannot order a ham sandwich without the other signing off on it. You know, it's a, it's a conundrum. And what it means is that Northern Ireland is kind of, I say trapped, but it's it, it exists in this strange limbo, but you have this kind of dysfunction in the way the place runs. On one level, the Good Friday Agreement has been a triumph for peace. I mean, as a peace deal, you know, it's right up there in terms of its successes. It it drew a line under the troubles, and that is a huge achievement. But as a system, in terms of the rules it created for which Northern Ireland has been run, it's not working. Uh, the wheels kind of been, have been coming off for the last few years now. The Stormont Assembly and Executive just bumbles from crisis to crisis, to standoffs, to impasses. Sinn Féin walked out, pulled the plug on the Assembly in 2017, which was mothballed for three years uh, during that time. Then it was revived only for the DUP to pull the plug on it um, earlier this year. And even when it is kind of operating, Northern Ireland is, is mismanaged and that's why people are so frustrated and fed up. They say, oh, why can't you make this place work? And it's partly because you can blame the parties and the politicians for their own decisions, and they certainly do merit a lot of criticism. But it's also the rules on which they operate does produce this dysfunction. Sounds incredibly frustrating to try and live there. I mean, the politicians basically aren't able to do their jobs and serve people in Northern Ireland in the way that they should be. Every single voter I spoke to covering the campaign said, oh, I just want this place to work properly. I'm just so fed up with how, you know, that shower up in Stormont and all this dysfunction. See there, you know, there is that, you know, this place needs to be fixed. And then say, oh, yeah, and who, and who are you going to vote for? And I said, oh, well, you know, I've got to vote for the DUP, right? Because otherwise Michelle O'Neill might get in. Or I'm going to vote for Sinn Féin because Jeffrey Donaldson is annoying me. And, you know, so it's kind of on voters as well. Um, you know, if they, I don't know if it's a definition of madness that, you know, you keep doing the same thing and expect different results or outcomes. And that's what we've been seeing in Northern Ireland. The one caveat, of course, is that the centre ground has been expanding. And so now you have um, the Alliance Party has 17 Assembly members, and that's they're just more than doubled the representation. And so that's significant. Alliance were real winners and have taken votes from all sides. They're on course to add to their assembly team a significant third block at Stormont alongside nationalism and unionism. So now what we have in Northern Ireland is three minorities, you know, the nationalists, unionists and and this middle. And so it it makes for an extremely frustrating but also fascinating place. Why is the power sharing agreement in place and how is it supposed to work? It's in place because... The sense is that Northern Ireland could go back to conflict were it not in place. There's a sense that the fissures remain so deep, the polarizations and resentments between green and orange are so volatile that 
only by having both in power simultaneously can you keep the show on the road, the show being peace. And so that is why these often very arcane, elaborate rules are in place to keep power sharing going. Um, but there's increasing recognition that the rules do need to be changed because it's, it's producing all these unintended effects, one of which is, for example, lack of real accountability because you don't really have an opposition in Northern Ireland government because all the big players are forced into government. So then who plays the role of opposition? And that is one reason why you don't have proper accountability or responsibility. Parallel to that, internal ructions and incoherence at the heart of government is how the opposition plays out. So that's one of the reasons why Northern Ireland is just so naughty. And in my kind of bleaker days here, I feel that the dysfunction is written into the DNA of the place and that we never will reach a nirvana of, oh, this is a, a normal society as such. What we just need to do is continue groping th through this kind of foggy limbo, keep the peace and hope that the sharp, jagged edges of the conflict will, over time, become smoother. How has the DUP responded to the election result? Um, partly with a told you so to fellow unionists saying, we told you if you didn't vote for us, that Sinn Féin was going to be the number one party. And now look, now they're not saying it so explicitly, but that's, you know, the unspoken thing. And that's like a critique of, you know, their, um, a fellow unionist saying, you know, you, by voting for other unionist parties or the alliance, uh, you, you allow this to happen. They feel that they, they cannot go into a storm and government and therefore, you know, they'll just, they will freeze or paralyze the formation of any new government unless the protocol is fixed or dealt with, uh, as they would put it. And so they're trying to present a, an ultimatum to the UK government saying it's Stormont, meaning, you know, functional Northern Ireland executive, or it's a protocol. You know, there, is, there will be no Stormont unless you fix the protocol. How can you form a government with Sinn Féin? There will, in my view, be no government formed in Northern Ireland until the protocol sorted out because we have this terrible situation where there's a sea border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom where laws are made for Northern Ireland over which no representative here in the Assembly or Westminster has any say. That is untenable. One um, party strategist told me, you know, all the energy in unionism right now is to our right. It's not, you know, the, the voices calling for, oh, let's make this place work. It's the kind of the real energy and momentum is, to, is on the right wing of unionism, which is the, the angriest uh, wing, which is angriest about the protocol. What do they dislike about it? DUP voters and politicians resent the protocol for a very understandable reason, which is that it does distinguish Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom. It draws a de facto trade border down the Irish Sea that imposes checks on certain numbers of goods coming from Great Britain across the Irish Sea into Northern Ireland. Now, on one level, this seems very arcane because the shortages in goods and disruptions in trade that we saw about a year ago have more or less disappeared. So to the average person in Northern Ireland, they do not see the effect of the protocol. Um, you know, your, your, your shelves are stocked. But they feel that constitutionally, this has gravely weakened the position of Northern Ireland in, in the UK, because they feel that, you know, if you're changing borders and putting up customs posts, that this will 
change the, the trade flows, for example, that if Northern Ireland is now de facto remains part of the EU, then trade flows will, instead of going from Northern Ireland to GB, you're going to have trade flows increasingly from north to the south of Ireland. And that this will become an increasing de facto economic unification and that political unification then cannot be far behind. Um, now, you can debate how likely that all that is, but it's certainly it's a very, very strong perception. Sinn Féin's ultimate goal is a united island. Now that they've achieved victory, does that mean that there's going to be a border poll at some point? There will be a border poll almost certainly at some point, yes. Um, Has this election victory brought it closer? Probably. How much closer? Absolutely nobody knows but I suspect the answer is going to be it's further away than many people think. I've been seeing some coverage here of, you know, it's all United Ireland. From, and a lot of that is actually coming from, from England because people find Northern Ireland often kind of boring and bewildering. But one thing you can grasp is, you know, United Ireland, it's whether you're in favour of it or not. And yet the reality, surprise, is much messier. And it's much more distant, I think, for several reasons. One, I've mentioned before, the support for United Ireland in Northern Ireland is actually as remains rather low. Um, and when you factor in questions like, would you pay additional taxes? Would you want to say goodbye to the NHS? It's actually a very tough sell. And so Sinn Féin is extremely aware of this, that they were there to be a border poll tomorrow, they would lose, which is why they absolutely emphatically do not want a border poll tomorrow. And the same applies to the South, that the people here in the South, notionally, they have a romantic attachment to the idea, but they haven't really thought deeply about what a united Ireland or shared Ireland might look like. And so what Sinn Féin hopes to do, though, is to continue a conversation and this sense of inevitability about that there, there will be a border poll eventually, because it just makes sense. There's some sort of historical force um, driving it. And so their hope is that they could Firstly, get some citizens' bodies here in the, in the south of Ireland to start talking about it. And that they hope that here in the south of Ireland that they could get into power in the next election in the south. And a lot of, when you see Sinn Féin on TV and Mary Lou Macdonald and Michelle O'Neill talking in the next few weeks and months, what's in their heads a lot of the time is the next election in the south of Ireland, which could still be two or three years away. But Sinn Féin feels that they're on the cusp of taking power here in the south of Ireland or leading a government for the very first time. And so they don't want to do anything that would rock the boat. And so they want to appear to be very responsible. The more there are ructions and dysfunctions in the north, it makes Sinn Féin look bad to, in the eyes of southern voters. So there's a, perform, a performative aspect to this where they, they want to be the grown-ups in the room. Now, when you have the, the DUP throwing the, tro- the toys out of their pram, that's not hard to do. But Sinn Féin, uh, they're looking at the five to 10-year time frame, and they feel that even if they then lose an, a border poll in five or 10 years, well, then they can go back and they can work on the next one. But even if it was actually 50 years, as long as they got where they wanted to go, they'd be okay with that. And what would need to happen for that poll to go ahead? Under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, the border poll can be called only by the Secretary of State of Northern Ireland. And he or she um, is supposed to do this if or when it appears that there would be a majority in favour of uh, United Ireland. So Sinn Féin's goal in the next few months and years 
will be to convince the Secretary of State and the media and everybody else that there is a majority in favour of a united Ireland in the north. Now, the rules of like how do you define or, or calculate you know, this putative majority is very murky. And the, the party has understandably and justifiably asked for clarity. So, well, how, how are you going to decide this? Would it be that there would be a majority of nationalists would be in the Stormont Assembly? Would it be a run of opinion polls showing this? How will you decide this? And the British government is not making that clear because, you know, I think fuzziness and murkiness would be quite convenient because they can, in a sense, make it up as they go along. Um, but what we're going to see now in the next few years would be Sinn Féin demanding more clarity from the British government as to exactly what are the yardsticks and metrics which the, the Secretary of State will use to decide if and when we do have a majority for United Ireland. Coming up, the DUP is warning that it will delay power sharing with Sinn Féin until Christmas unless the British government does what it's demanding. Rory, in order to govern from the Assembly, both sides of the divide now need to come together as part of the power-sharing agreement, which the DUP is threatening not to rejoin. What are they saying they want to see happen before they go into the power-sharing agreement? The DUP is insisting that the protocol needs to be addressed or dealt with to form a new government. Now, addressed and dealt with are interesting words there because they're quite nebulous. What they're not saying is replaced, expunged, annihilated, banished into history. The language has become a little bit more modulated. So I think what they do want is an end to checks on goods coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland um, because the sight of border posts and customs men looking at, you know, even just barcodes and things like that, stuff which can seem so arcane, but is anathema at unionists. So I think that would be the first thing, is just the an end to, to border posts or certainly make them less visible as a minimum of what they, what they need. And apart from that, then I think, I think they're open uh, then to what else, whatever else the government might, might add, other sweeteners which the government might, might give to them so that they, the DUP, could then go to their supporters and say, OK, we've got a victory, you know, um, or, we, or at least this is the deal. And either, you know, try and sell it and say and claim it as a victory for, you know, DUP's negotiating skills in defending unionism. Or they could say this is not good enough and, and try and trigger a new election. And then we're back to, you know, where we are again, back to square one. How has Boris Johnson responded to the demands that the DUP are making? Their demands have been useful to him in that he amplifies them when uh, he or Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, you know, are using the megaphone to shout over at the European Union saying, look, the protocol doesn't work. It's causing ructions in Northern Ireland. We, you know, we have to change it. And so it's been quite useful for the British government. What could the UK government do to appease the DUP then? The British government could do at least two things that might appease the DUP. One, either eliminate or at least drastically reduce the checks and visibility of checks on goods coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. And secondly, try to soften or eliminate any 
hold that the European Court of Justice has over Northern Ireland or any part of the United Kingdom, um, because that is also anathema to Brexiteers. So those would be at least two things um, they could do. I've got a feeling that might not be enough. They may still need to try to offer something else because, you know, the DUP feel now that, you know, the hot, sticky breath of the traditional unionist voice, which is their kind of a right wing rival that won almost 7% of the vote. And they come the next election, that is where the DUP will be worried about. So, you know, they, they feel they need to come back with something meaningful um, to present to their own supporters. And, you know, whether Boris Johnson would be able to kind of wrangle that um, from the European Union uh, and whether he's willing to pay the political price in terms of, you know, might sideline some of his other priorities. But, you know, given that there's so much else in the intray in Downing Street right now, between Ukraine, perhaps a recession, you know, will they really want to risk a trade war with the EU on the basis of trying to fix a storment? Not, not really. Or, well, I don't know. Um, and the DUP doesn't know, uh, which what ma- is what makes this poker game so, so fraught right now. Rory, thank you very much. Thank you, Anna. That was Rory Carroll. You can read all his coverage on the fallout from the election in Northern Ireland at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams and Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.